Hello, people of the world, and welcome to today's episode of the Unity Project podcast. For those of you who are tuning in for the first time, the Unity Project podcast is one about the relationships that we have with our bodies. I am so unbelievably excited because today is the very first day that I get to introduce to you guys season four of the Unity Project podcast. I am shooketh that I've come this long getting to do this like I feel like I've gotten away with something getting to talk to the the kinds of people that I've gotten to talk with and just learn and grow and I don't know just just meet people from all around the world with the most incredible stories and the fact that you guys have been listening has just been the coolest thing ever so welcome to season four this is our show and I'm just really excited to to get to chat with you guys again. Uh, for today's episode, I got to interview Rashid Newson. He is an author, a television drama writer, an executive producer, and a showrunner. He just wrote and published his debut novel, My Government Means to Kill Me, which is, I mean, if that name doesn't get you because that name is really what got me, then just know you should be reading this book. It's a beautifully honest and raw novel about the AIDS crisis and it taught me so much from perspective that I feel like was just a privilege to get to to get to learn from and read from and I got to chat with Rashid today about about his book and about just him and his life and yeah so you guys enjoy the episode Rashid, how is it going over there? It's good. Uh, it's it's a nice, you know, Sunday morning, and you know the kids are up, and Adam, and you know everything's humming at this house. So <laughs> That's awesome. That's so awesome. I, I love I love that you're in you're in Pasadena. My sister used to live in Altadena, so I spent a lot of time over there. Oh yeah, no, it's it's lovely. It's incredibly suburban. Uh, <laughs> when I was younger, I never would have thought that I would live on a leafy street. Uh, with my husband and two kids, but I'm glad it happened. So there you go. Leafy Street. I love it. How old are your kids? Uh, five and seven on the verge, the seven year olds on the verge of turning eight. Okay. I got you. That's about the same age difference of me and my sister. We were, we went between buddies and just punching it out. So it was really they're fun. Pre- they're pretty good. I mean, I will say, I mean, they're not too many silver linings to the pandemic. One of the minor ones. Yeah is that they became best friends because they just about spent two years being the only kids they could play with on a consistent basis. But that, I mean, mean, I'd like to think they'll be close to the rest of their lives in part because they had so much concentrated time together. Oh, that's so awesome. What a good random, not even random, but a good perk to something that was so bad. That's awesome. I I mean, we just would do things, you know, you'd, you'd see them begin to argue and you'd go, guys, they're like, this is it. Like you're, you're best friends now. So yeah. figure it out. There you go. There you go. Well, well Rashid, to, to start off our, our interview here, I'm going to ask you what I, what I normally ask to start off. And that's just to describe the relationship that you have with your body. It's changed over time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm 43 now. Um, I've, I've always felt what I would call comfortable in my skin in general. Mm-hmm. But there was certainly a peak in my late teens and into my 20s where um, 
I was athletic and very fit and felt very sexy easily. Um, and so that was, that was great. I mean, that was just, you really could wake up and put on a, a, a tank top and some shorts and go out into the world and, and feel it come alive. Um, now I've hit the point where, you know, it hurts, the body hurts in the morning and, um, it takes, a, it takes effort. Like I can still feel beautiful and sexy, but it, it's, it's, I'm, I'm out of my, I woke up like this period. Mm. Um, and, but yet I, I also, I now I have a lot more, um, compassion for my body. Like it's, it's, it's certainly done me very well for a very long time. So if it can't do everything it used to do, that's, that's okay. I, I, I make, I give it those allowances. Uh, but generally speaking, I do still, I do still, I've always felt very comfortable in my own skin. Mm. Oh, that's, that's really awesome to hear that. I don't hear that often hearing that you've always been really comfortable in your skin. So that's really cool. Well, how, how did you feel like that? Just kind of as, as a kid, do you feel like you always had that mentality back then? Was there any kind of influence that helped you feel that way? I mean, I, I think I was rather liked by my peers. So I felt, I mean, I got a lot of what we'll call positive affirmation. Um, I was a cute kid, which seems like a weird <laughs> thing to say. Seems no, like a it's a good thing. thing. But, it, but people were typically very positive. Um, and there was sort of just that, that um, lot of energy to burn when I was young. And my body luckily responded the way I wanted it to. Um, I don't know. And this sounds so silly. I, I don't think there's another human being who's gotten mileage, more mileage out of having dimples than me. <laughs> you know, I see them. Yeah, I see right? them. They're working. And, and they're always working. And, and what no one tells you is they're evergreen. So, you know, you can earn a six pack or something like that, but that tends to, that's hard to maintain. Better to have features that just hold up over time, you know? Mm. Um, eyes do it, cheekbones can do it, dimples do it. Um, so I've been, I've been sort of lucky that way. Um, I'm sure there were things I would have changed when I was younger. Now, it, it, things having so worked out as they have, I don't have that feeling so much. But I'm sure when I was younger, I, I, I wished I was a little taller. Um, I wish probably that I had hair like other people I saw. But by and large, it's been a pretty happy story. The thing now is negotiating with what I will call decline and unavoidable decline. Mm -hmm. um, I, for example, I was, there was a time before my kids were born in my mid thirties. I was, um, I was lifting weights and loving it and eventually got to the point where that was unsustainable because I have benign positional vertigo. Oh, uh, it comes and goes, which I should mention. Yeah, that that there's the that probably has been the biggest betrayal of the body is that yeah. suddenly like it doesn't respond and you can't do what you want to do. But mm -hmm. I was like, I was like, I was one of the annoying CrossFitters, and it just became impossible because snatching heavy weight above your head when you have uh, a, a problem with your balance is not a great idea. Mm -mm. Oh man, yeah my my dad had really bad vertigo and. I'm always like afraid I'm going to have it because I feel like being nauseous is my least favorite feeling in the whole entire world. Is that how it felt to you? 
Um, it felt like the boat was rocking, and then yeah. at one point, I couldn't, I couldn't sit up uh, without being sick. Uh. Um, but it's also, again, it's this. I mean, like what I've had to learn is, I think when I was younger, I could push through the pain, I could push through discomfort, I could push through fatigue. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't do that anymore because the price is too high. Um, but you know, in my case, my you know, my my vertigo is typically triggered by a consistent lack of sleep and and pressure and so i've just gotten to the point now where i'm like well i'm going to go to bed and this other thing will get done when it gets done mm-hmm. because to the, the penalty for not listening to my body is i'm on my back for three days and i and then i'm really screwed so i've had i'd say two bad bouts but it's been i mean it's been almost probably two years since anything like that happened Mm-hmm. And I would credit that to me now when I, when I feel the boat rocking even a little bit, I get some more sleep. I, 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 I listen to my body. Okay. That, that's really, that's special in a way. It's kind of like you've found this unique way that your body tells you, Hey, pay attention to me. We need this. And that real i mean it really really sucks that vertigo is the result in the other in the other way of not listening but that says a lot about i feel like your connection with yourself that you've learned to listen to it have have, did that like was it hard to come to get there not by the time i got i mean like what i think i think i learned that i had lost a capacity i mean what, what happens is when you're very young you can function on maybe four hours of sleep several nights in a row, mm-hmm. or at least you, or at least you feel you can. Um, I would, you know, you almost don't want to go back and grade your performance, but you can do it. <laughs> yeah. And, you, and, and we come to rely on that. We have these stressful jobs. We have these busy lives. And if you know, well, I don't need quite as much sleep and I can put the kids to bed and then I can come up to the office and work through the night. You start to, re- you start to bank on it. Mm-hmm. And it was true at one time I could do that. What I've learned is I can't do that quite so much, if at all, anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, it is, it's too damaging. And that's, it's humbling. I mean, I didn't, I mean, you don't love realizing that you've lost that ability, but it's, but it's also sort of, in my mind, it's non negotiable. Like there's no, now that I know that about myself. I wouldn't do it. It's like finding out you've got like a peanut allergy where you're just not going to eat peanuts anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, like you're not going to tempt it. Yeah. Um, and it actually, you know, the medical thing actually helps because when you, you know, if you talk to people that are sort of asking you to keep an, a, a crazy deadline, instead of saying, I won't do this just because I won't, because that people get upset and they question your dedication. You get to say, oh, well, I have this medical condition. Mm-hmm. And if I do X, Y, Z, these bad things will happen. No one questions you after that. Oh, no wow. One. I mean, you've told them you've got a medical problem. And what are they going to say? We don't care. Yeah. You know, I mean, they've got a, they've got, it, it's kind of a nice thing to have uh, because it, it helps you hold a line that everyone else has to respect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that that's that's a very very good and important way of seeing it because it's the truth. Mm-hmm. It's the truth, and I think like I hear a lot of uh, a lot of the time when people talk about um, like autoimmune 
stuff where it's kind of like an invisible illness where you know you feel horrible and you know that if you push yourself more um you will end up sick you will end up on your back like you're saying yeah but people around you can't see that they just see you as a person like they don't see a broken leg or a broken arm so it's really really cool and important that that you're able to just say that like no i have an actual medical condition and not to feel like not to feel guilty or feel like in any way less than i've heard i've heard a lot of people talk that way i i present it as this is better for everybody uh mm -hmm. tj and i my writing partner and i are the co-showers of bel-air i could work all night and try to get you something and it could trigger this in me and i could be down for three to four days or i could go to bed tonight I'll work on it tomorrow and you'll get it a day later. Mm. The choice becomes so clear. Everybody just, I mean, everybody just says, okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll push it back and we'll get it a day later as opposed to no, no, go up there and let's, let's trigger an event that incapacitates you for an unknown series of days. Mm. Okay. That that's awesome. That is an incredible way to put it. Cause that's the truth. And it's just saying it how it is. That's very cool. So, Rajit, tell me, tell me about your book. The, my government means to kill me. I, I found out about it by my favorite bookstore ever in St. Louis called Left Bank Bookstore. Posted about it. Oh, great! And anything that they post, I'm all about because I don't know if you have you heard of that bookstore. I'm not sure. I've, if heard, it's out yet. I've heard of it, but I haven't been there. Okay, well, if you're ever in St. Louis, go to Left Bank. They like made this whole. I'll send it to you on, on Instagram. They made a whole post about it. And I saw in the name got me because I'm like, oh, that is something I want to read. <laughs> Tell us about how, what that story is about, how it, how you came to want to write it. Absolutely. My Government Means to Kill Me is a novel. It follows the story of a young gay black man who moves to New York City when he's 17 and it's 1985. So he's arrived during the height of the AIDS crisis. He doesn't know that yet. Initially, his concerns are really sort of young and I'll say selfish in a way. He's trying to figure out where am I going to live? How am I going to earn money? How will I make friends? And where am I going to get laid? But mm -hmm. as he begins to take care of those needs, he sees the bigger needs. And it's really the story of some, a young man's political and sexual awakening. He goes from being someone who's probably pretty myopic to being somebody who's an effective advocate. Mm. Okay. Yeah, that is a really, really good way of explaining that book in a really short way. <laughs> you must have worked Thank on that. You. I've had some time. I've had some time to think about it. Yeah. It's like, is that your elevator pitch? That's it. That's yeah, that's the one. Just tell people real quick. Here's what it is. That's a great pitch. I'm like, wow, you've covered all of it in such a short, concise way. That's very cool. Wait, where what gave you the inspiration to write this book? I've been thinking about that time period. Um, I'm, I'm about 10 years too young to have been of age uh, during the height of the AIDS crisis. Like I was, I was alive, but I was a, a child. Mm. Uh, but I've thought about that time period all my life because you just sort of wonder what you would have done had I been alive then. I, I assume it's it's I, I assume it's what a lot of people do if you're part of any sort of minority group. You you go back to the uh, the time of the greatest struggle. I've I've thought like what would happen if I'd lived during the civil rights movement. Oh, um, yeah. 
you know, my husband is Jewish and has wondered, well, what would I have done in the, in the lead up and during the Holocaust? You just wonder how you would have met the moment that probably defined your community. Um, and so I've, I've mused about it a lot. And then I, when I decided I wanted to write a book about it, it turned out, I mean, I had to do some research, but it's almost like I've been studying the period my entire life. I'd read all these books. I had seen all these documentaries and movies that really sort of gave me a lot of information to, to, to I want to say play off of, but I don't, I don't mean play in, the, um, in any sort of frivolous sense of the word, but it certainly gave me a lot to work with. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, first off, uh, high five to your husband. I'm Jewish too. So I love it. I love <laughs> to see it. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that's really cool. That's really, that's a really, really well or good way of putting it. I was just watching, um, this show, this new Ali of their own show. Oh have yeah. You heard of it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, have, I have friends who work on it. Yeah. It's a great show. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I, I grew up watching the movie. And so then when the show came out, I was like, oh my gosh, it's like the, a more realistic. Everyone's saying it's like, no, this is like really close to what actually happened. And I'm watching it and me, me and my, my partner, who's a woman are watching it. And we just both got so torn apart at the, at the it was one of the last episodes where the bar got, uh, the police came into the bar and it was just like, all of a sudden this realization of how bad it had been and like how it's bad now but like back then like oh my gosh and so Uh, that definitely that definitely puts you in a place of thinking what what would you do so that's very interesting that 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 you decided oh sorry um to take that and write a whole story of it i love it What, what did you what did you learn what were some really big things you learned in your research of the aids crisis in that time period I mean, I, I like to think, you know, you like to think that you can see through sort of the gloss of history, but it was, it was surprising that the things that even I had taken for granted that later I was like, oh, wait a minute. Oh, but of course. Right. So I'll just start with like what we come to think of generally as the start of the AIDS crisis, which for most people that you, you imagine the early eighties, mm-hmm. uh, the New York times wrote the first story on it in 1981. But that's just when it reached the consciousness. That's just when it reached the consciousness of what we'll say is, you know, uh, ge- the general population. Um, you look into it, people had been dying of AIDS into the 70s, in some cases into the 1960s. Mm. But our mind thinks it starts where there was this designation of it being recognized by the majority. Um, and so that was something that was really sort of, you know, I, I try, I think in the book we looked up and it was, I want to say 67 or 66. It's like the early known confirmed case of someone dying uh, of, of AIDS in America. And it's just sort of mind boggling to be like, wait, it was, it was in our country that long. It was, it was, it was killing people for that long. I mean, even now when you look at the AIDS quote or you think of that number, there's a dark side of the moon that we will never know people mm. we lost who we lost before this had a name before it was important enough for our society to keep track. So that's, that probably is the most powerful one that just really took me back. It's like, Oh, wait a minute. We actually don't even know when this began. We don't know when the start of the story is. 
Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That reminds me of what you were saying. I think it was really early on in the book about how um, Trey was talking about how he, the main character for those listening, uh, he was talking about how he wouldn't have really noticed if like his, I can't remember what he said, like his barber went missing or the bus yeah. driver went missing. And it's just like, it doesn't really click if these people aren't these like big names or something. Well, one of the things that, and, and it's really hard for people to imagine now because now almost no one is lost. I mean, because of social media, if you went to summer camp with somebody in the fourth grade, you know exactly where they are now. They, they don't, mm -hmm. No one seems to just disappear off stage. But that used to be a big part of what happened. People moved and you never heard from them again. And you didn't know what happened to them. Um, in big cities, the idea that people would move and it was a very transient population that people washed out and there were new people who came in on the bus meant that if you went to a club and the cute guy you liked wasn't there anymore, you just assumed he moved on. You, mm -hmm. you, didn't, you, didn't, you didn't really investigate that in terms of like, oh my God, where did this guy go? But now what I think Trey is realizing is a lot of people were disappearing and they were come, they were becoming, you know, they were coming, they had HIV, they had AIDS and they were dying and they went home to die. And that's another thing is that people were, we're talking about an era where people went home very sick and their family wouldn't tell anybody what was going on, mm. you know? So it, it seems you know, in writing it, I talked about, I was like, I try to remind myself all the time that the characters don't know what's going to happen next. Like there, you know, we, I say, Oh, this book happens during the height of the AIDS crisis. Trey doesn't know that. Mm -hmm. No one knows that yet. You know? And yeah. so it was important for me to, for them to keep a perspective that would have been real to what was going on. I mean, we all just lived from a, through a pandemic. And I think there you'll find that if you talk to 20 people, they had 20 different moments where they, they understood this was real and this was serious. And this was going to be unlike anything they've ever done. I remember when we were all trying to bend the curve and we thought, oh, we'll just go in our houses for a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. And I had a friend who I was thinking, I think it's going to take more than a couple of weeks. And he goes, well, how long do you think you can expect people to do this? And I said, I don't know, maybe three months. And he was like, oh my God, <laughs> you could never, we could never. And I was, I mean, three months, I thought, you know, both of us had no sense of what we were stepping into. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It feels so crazy to be talking about an example that literally is happening. Yes. Like yes. now. Still going. Still. Oh, my gosh. That just blows my mind sometimes. Not to bring up another TV show, but we were watching. Have you watched the morning a, show? By the way, I'm a fan of television. Having okay. you know, most. <laughs> Most of my career is there. So amazing. Then I'm going to go ahead and shamelessly bring up all the shows. Uh, the, the morning show. Have you, you watched that one? I saw the pilot, but I didn't, I didn't stick with it. Okay. So in the second season, they're, they're filming it as if it is happening in like real time in 2020. Mm -hmm. And so you're seeing like at the very beginning, there's like these little, these little foreshadowing moments that they had no idea about, but like people sneezing in the background or like all of a sudden you see in like the news headlo headlines, like Corona and people are talking about how, Oh no, don't worry about that. And it's just so, it feels like you're watching some kind of crazy science fiction movie because you know, it's going to happen because it happened. But then you remember, no, that that is like true real life. That's so, it's so insane. And then to, 
because well, I think when we think, or at least when I think about like the AIDS crisis, it feels so long ago. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't. No, in the lives of many of us, you know, it was, and and, um, and it was immediate, and it happened. It's it sort of like it it when it finally did catch public consciousness, it did it. It, it caught it so uh, quickly, and the grip was so tight. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, as someone who was born in 1979, and so I'm in the shadow of what we'll call the the peak. Mm-hmm. All of sex ed is dominated by discussion of AIDS. Oh, wow. All of it. That is all like, that's, I mean, I don't I mean, like, I don't remember anybody mentioning the cap, the clap or gonorrhea or anything else. It yeah. was all under the headline of AIDS. And, um, you know, in my case, going to Catholic school, AIDS was used as a sort of a way to scare everybody into the idea of abstinence. Uh-huh. I mean, I mean, and again, and I, I you know, safe sex, responsible sex, I'm all for it. The idea that two virgin gay teenagers in Indiana were going to give each other anything is laughable when you think about it. Mm-hmm. Like if you had a conversation about well, wait, your sexual experience, which is I don't have any and you don't have any. The fear that they brought into the room would have evaporated. But, you know, we weren't we just weren't having those conversations. We weren't able to see through sort of all the fear mongering that came with the aftermath of the, of the height of the, of the crisis. Yeah. Yeah. So, so how did that come off to you? Like, do you remember how old you were when you first learned about the AIDS crisis going on? Um, I rem- I mean, Ryan White was from Indiana. I'm from Indiana. Uh, Ryan White was a uh, young, like a teenager who, uh, became HIV positive through a blood transfusion. He was a, a hemophiliac. Oh, and um, they had given him a, you know, this is before they tested the blood or knew to test the blood. And, and so he was HIV positive and his local community responded in absolute fear. They didn't want him going to school with the other children. And he became in those days, a celebrity. I don't know how many people under the age of 40 remember Ryan White, but he was, um, an incredibly big deal at the time. Um, I mean, Elton John made friends with him. Princess Diana, I want to say, met with him. Wow. And he died um, at, a, at a young age. I mean, maybe he was 16, maybe 17. Mm-hmm. Um, and his funeral was like, I mean, they, they aired it on television. It was a major event. Uh, so that was probably the first time I had thought about it. And it was, of course, also frightening because he was a child and I was a child and you're suddenly going, wait a minute, this can, this can happen to us. But again, like, like you think about it, you're like, but I wasn't a hemophiliac and I wasn't getting blood transfusions. So <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't actually in danger, but I mean, I remember adults being like, see, it can happen to you. And you're just like, oh shit. You know, <laughs> I mean, right. oh shit. <laughs> there was a lot of, uh, you know, and as in most cases, when there's a public debate, there's a lot of fear and not enough reason. Mm. So, um, so that was probably the first time it came up um, in high school. Um, I remember my school arranged for um, a speaker. It was, it was a man who was dying of AIDS to come and speak to the students. And I remember that like quite clearly. Um, and in college, um, one of my best friends, sort of introduced me to this foster home for children in DC 
who uh, were HIV positive or living with AIDS. And um, I volunteered there while I was in college. And uh, the year after I was out of college, I was a volunteer there for five years. So those are, those are probably my, those are my early sort of um, interactions with the, with the disease. Okay. I got you. And then uh, knowing what you know now, like all the research you did for the book and just, just being who you are in general, just life. uh, When do you know what kind of, what was the big thing that happened that made it this worldwide thing versus just how you were saying, like in the sixties and seventies, people were dying of it before we really knew about it. Like what changed that? What changed that? Um, I think, I think suddenly there was some reporting being done by the mainstream press, but I also would, I, you know, I'd give a lot of credit to, to you know, gay men's health crisis and an act up. Um, and the gay rights movement, which basically realized that, okay, wait a minute, this is, this is really eating into our ranks at a way that they were the first people to start to notice, okay, wait, this is happening. Mm-hmm. And they concentrated a lot of attention, a lot of energy in engaging the, the media, mostly concentrated in New York, into paying attention and getting politicians to pay attention and say that word. So. You know, again, in the in the in the sort of like milk toast version of it, you could go, oh well, Rock Hudson got AIDS, and it was a Hollywood star, and he was president. He was friends with President Reagan. Yeah, that brought a lot of eyeballs to it, but really, it took um, these advocates who who just kept tally and said, ten thousand dead, fifteen thousand dead, twenty thousand dead. When are we going to talk about this? When are we going to engage? When are you going to mm-hmm. try to find a cure uh what kind of protection is out there for us and they dedicated it, it sort of it seems like it sort of popped onto the national consciousness but that was after years and years of work by people who were making sure that drumbeat was finally heard mm. okay so that was like a collective we need to do something about this yeah okay that's really cool wow and so, so you grew up in Indiana? Yeah. Okay. And so you grew up, so you were born in 79. So you were a kid during the 80s and all this was going yeah. on. When you did start to realize what was going on, if it was like after Ryan White or just you were learning, how did you feel as like about, like, did you feel like, did you feel afraid? Did you feel like, like, what was that experience? Oh, yeah. I mean, I felt afraid and had been, I mean, and that was because um, that's, that's the posture they wanted uh-huh. people in. They wanted, I mean, they just like, we're going to, I mean, we're going to scare you. Now, I, you know, the argument would be, we were trying to save your life. What would have, looking back, what would have been great is just introducing sort of more rational ways of conducting your sex life Mm. i mean which is where we ultimately got to was like let's have a conversation you know have you been tested when was the last time you were tested are you safe this is what we're going to use and we can go down there together and, and, and and clear up any any questions we might have about our health at the time it was just like the idea was every time you have sex you're gambling with your life which again could could in some cases be true but in a lot of cases with 
a really candid conversation wouldn't would have would have you'd have realized there really was no danger. And also it made you presume, at least in, at least for my upbringing, that every sexual partner could potentially be lying to you mm. and uh, out to infect you and harm you. And it's again, it's not to say those things didn't happen, but that's a pretty dark way. And you're trying to seek intimacy mm-hmm. and yet your presumption you're you've been trained to look at this person as somebody who might knowingly infect you with a, a deadly disease you know that there's some cognitive there's a lot of cognitive dissonance there that uh that i think get in the way and i i think it wasn't necessary i feel like essentially um conservatives who wanted an abstinence agenda seized upon this as a way to sort of hammer that message home. Mm. So, you know, we had a whole generation or two raised to have a response that was not as nuanced as it needed to be. Mm-hmm. And, and ultimately, I think also, I mean, one of the unintended consequences, let's, let's assume it was unattended, is it made you almost subconsciously think of people with HIV and AIDS as pariahs, as a, mm-hmm. as a danger to you. Mm-hmm. And, and probably stopped a lot of the compassion that should have been going in their direction. Oh, God. Oh, that like, makes me feel sick. Yeah. So that was, that was America. Yeah, that wasn't, isn't, oh, my goodness. Kind of always has been America. Yeah. Yeah. So, so talking a lot about how they use that to promote abstinence and yeah. just, just not have sex. And you, you told me that when, when we started, or when we first started talking here, you were saying that it was important to you in writing your book to make it very sex positive. Were you raised with like a sex positive mindset or did that take a lot of undoing and work to kind of get there? It's, it's it's a it's hard to answer because like I th- it's certainly the messages like we're getting were not sex positive. Uh huh. Oh, for sure. And the first times I remember having sex, I was incredibly afraid. Mm-hmm. But it's almost like realizing that they're finally realizing there is no boogeyman under the bed. You know, um, you know. I remember one of the things people talked about. This is so. I mean, but this is the way it was. Um, I was assured that having sex outside of marriage and with someone I wasn't in some deep, deep relationship with would leave me feeling hollow and empty after it was over. Yeah. And then I have, then I started having sex and that never happened. (laughs) I felt great. This Uh was wonderful. When (laughs) When can we do it again? Mm hmm. And, and so then you start going, well, wait a minute, that was a lie. What else was a lie? And a lot of it turns out to be a lie. And that was really exciting and freeing to discover that, wait a minute. Oh, oh, okay. Like, I, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a bad person because I enjoy sex or um, can have it. And as long as I'm checking up on my health and having these conversations and being, taking these precautions, 
guys, I think I'm okay. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was, um, that was really wonderful to discover. Um, I've wanted to tell a story during the height of the AIDS crisis that just spoke to some of the realities I've noticed in life, which is no matter how grim or frightening the present may be, people find a way to have joy. They find a way to laugh and they find a way to have sex and pretending that those things stop because you're trying to push another message is dishonest. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted, I wanted to just reflect those things uh, throughout the book that of course people were still having sex and, and, and there's, and there can be a little bit of cognitive dissonance. I mean, I did, um, you know, I'd be 19 years old and I'd be volunteering at grandma's house with kids who are HIV positive and, you know, helping with their homework, dinner, bedtime stories, goodbye, leave at like nine 30, ride my bike to, to DuPont circle, which is affectionately known as the fruit loop. And would lock my bike up and go to clubs and go out that night and, you know, have sex. And, you know, I would say, and I would say, by the way, I'd say a fair amount of the time I I was protected sex, but certainly not all the time. You know, you sometimes, Mm -hmm. oh, I've, I've slept with him before, or I know him, or, you know, you would tell yourself you were safe and you would take your chances. Mm -hmm. And that, is just a part of that age. And that's a part of that reality. And I, I wanted to, I wanted to just, I felt it was my job as a writer to put all that in. Yeah. Oh, that's, that, that's incredible. I think that I, when I read books that have so much, like so much truth in the way the stories are told like that, it just, it gives me this feeling of just, it's like that, that right there, that is being an actual person. And it's so true and it's so important in the way that you wrote that and the way that you're talking about it now, especially like just, I mean, I'm trying to imagine, I can't, I can't imagine what it was like, but like the thought of just knowing, um, like from my own background, which you, you said you went to Catholic school, right? Yeah. Okay. Did you? Did, were you like in the midst of all the purity culture and stuff back then? Was that a, was that a big? Oh component? yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. So like my my understanding of my own experience with that, and then trying to add on to that, like just homophobia in general, and then on top of that, also this this disease that can kill you, that is like just screamed from the rooftops now that it's because of having sex and that's going to kill you, and it's just I can't. I can't imagine how hard that was to live a life where you were able to be sex positive, were able to enjoy, enjoy yourself with partners and just be a person. I, um, for whatever, I don't know how to even describe my personality along this. I, I, I you know, some people, they tell you the, the fence is electric. Don't touch the electric fence. Uh-huh. And I understand that reasonable people, would just never do that. I have something in me that says, well, let me just see if that's true. And I touch it a little bit. And then once you know that that's a lie, you can climb the fence and you can escape. Ooh. 
And that's my experience with a lot of institutions and a lot of rules. If you test it, you will find that it's just, it's just sort of, um, it's just there to keep you in your place. <laughs> and, and once you get over it, and, and, and again, like, I don't think I, I don't think the first time I did that was with like <laughs> sex, but the problem with a lot of uh, conservative places, they've got so many rules and so many of them are just sort of bullshit. Mm-hmm. And when you can, when you can tear through the smaller ones, you get, you learn, you can tear through the bigger ones as well. Oh my God. I want to write that on something. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. Talk, talk to you more about uh, what you, what you learned when researching your book, but also in general about the government and like, like uh, one of the chapters that really got me was when uh, Trey was talking to those, um, the rich old white guys at a party. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And about that kind of brought him to go on rent strike and just what that opened up for him uh, and what he learned as far as like why it was so difficult to figure out the name of his landlord. We sort of, it's sort of, it's sort of funny. There are things that we just assume they have to be this way. Mm-hmm. Um you know, the DMV is one, right? Like you just assume you're going to go down the DMV. It's going to be a nightmare and it's going to take all day. But with a lot of the things in government, what you're finding is they're not, they're not hard to access by accident. Mm-hmm. It's by design. It's meant to keep you away. It's meant to make sure you don't access these resources or ask these questions or receive this information. That's important to acknowledge because once you understand that's the game that's being played, then you as a participant are better equipped to deal with it. Mm-hmm. You realize they're trying to wear you down. I mean, I'll just give everyone, this is a s- small thing, but it's, and it's personal, but it, and it's not in the book, but it's just the IRS, like every once in a while, if you ever get audited, they'll send you a threatening letter telling you, owe them a lot of money. And if you don't pay them right now, the number will go up. Mm-hmm. You have to know like you have to talk to you. You have to know you're right and that they've made a mistake and let them keep threatening you until you get to the point where you can talk to somebody and have a resolution. I've had this happen two or three times. I, I, I mean, like in the end, they've had to pay me back. But the game is sent. I mean, what they're preying on is you're getting this thing from the IRS. Yeah. And we've said you've made a mistake. And I mean, and wouldn't we know? And, <laughs> and we're telling you the pain will increase if you challenge us. You have to remind yourself, it's just a letter. Mm-hmm. Probably just generated automatically. And if you're right, you're right. Wear them down. Stick with it. It's taken years in some cases to resolve these things. But I know that's the game. They, they're hoping that my fear of them will make me write them a check and stop the game. But if you know, you're gonna, at the end of this, I'm going to win. Play it. And politics has a lot of that in it. I think um, one of the things I'm hoping that we're beginning to realize, and certainly they realized during the height of this book, was that it's not enough to just show up and vote in November. Mm-hmm. That we do a lot in between. <laughs> yeah. 
that's actually almost more important or in a lot of cases makes November a foregone conclusion. Uh-huh. And so what I wanted in this book was for him and that, and the rent strike is one of them is him beginning to realize, Oh, this is how the game works when you want to gain something from the government mm-hmm. and you can cry about it. You can complain about it, or you could learn the win- learn the rules and beat them at their own game. And that is, that's what I wanted to show his education of being like, oh, I mean, one of the things I love about ACT UP, um, when you really get into it and you look at them is ACT UP would send out a press release saying, we're going to take over the CDC. We're going to take over this building today. We're going to, you know, they didn't, you know, they didn't have the bodies to do that. They didn't have the numbers. They also, you know, you don't want to get arrested, right? So ACT UP would start with that charge. They'd show up with a lot of people. They'd scale the wall. They'd put a huge sign outside. And from the news, if you looked at it with that banner hanging from the windows, it would look like they took over the building. Oh, my God. That's, they, they did not. But on oh the evening news, ACTA protested the CDC today and seized the building. And look at that picture. There's a banner hanging from the windows and there are guys up on the, I mean... It looked like they mobbed it. They might, they might not. They didn't get further than the lobby. Oh. But they understood how media works. And they understood how messaging works. Mm-hmm. And they used those to great advantage. Oh, my goodness. I, I have so many things I want to learn about. <laughs> so many things. This is just... I only woke up to like the truth about politics and government stuff maybe four or five years ago. So I'm still kind of a baby in that regards when it comes to learning about it. And I just, I think the book will help. I mean, the book, what's, I mean, and people know there's, there are footnotes in this book that certainly if you want to go down a rabbit hole, you could follow any of these footnotes into the people and the movements and the organizations that shape the reality that Trey was living in. And in many mm-hmm. in some cases continue to shape our reality. And I wanted that to be, I wanted the book to be this entree to those discussions and to that sort of discovery of politics and that the myth making of politics almost never stops. And some of that is because, you know, the truth is sort of hard and nuanced and unknowable. And it's just so nice to tidy it up. Mm -hmm. I just, I, I love sort of poking fun at that. And busting, busting through it. I mean, I was, um, I was lucky. Uh, Bill Goldstein is the official biographer for Larry Kramer. And we were just talking about, in the book, I sort of give this alternate history on why, how ACT UP got started. And it wasn't just, my, my thought is it wasn't just Larry Kramer making a speech that suddenly everybody said, let's do it. And Bill was like, you know, my fictionalized version gets to a truth that often doesn't get said, which is, Yes, Larry Kramer did give this great speech that basically said, let's start something like ACT UP. Except when you look at the three or four people who were pivotal to the creation of ACT UP, outside of Larry Kramer, almost none of them were at this speech. Mm. They weren't there that day. And the idea of an ACT UP-like organization had been floating around for years. So it wasn't like Larry woke up, you know, that morning and the light bulb went off and he said, why, or he said something spontaneous that grew into this thing. But the lore 
loves that story. You know, mythology loves that simple story of the person who says, let's do something. And it sparks everyone into action. It galvanizes the crowd and something powerful and wonderful comes out of it. But that, I mean, I want to say, I want to say never happens, but almost never happens. Yet our minds are such that we fall for it again and again and again. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I definitely, for those listening, definitely, definitely check out this book and read the footnotes and just, just read it. I, I'm so excited to get to talk to you about all this. I like, I don't know, like I said a second ago, I'm fairly new to opening my eyes and learning like the truth of what has happened and what will continue happening and learning like you said that it's more about than what we just do in November. What what are what are some practical things that you think we can be doing outside of voting in November to help make the right changes? I mean, some of the, some of the, some things or I would say there's some things we can do that don't need the government's involvement. There are organizations that do direct action help people. I mean, there, I always joke that there are two types of things you can do. One is sort of policy and that's let's change the laws of the land. Mm -hmm. The other is direct action, which is like, how about you make a sandwich for someone who's hungry? How mm -hmm. about you supply shelter for someone who's experiencing homelessness? So, and, 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 and what I also argue is that people, it doesn't matter. Just do something somewhere on that spectrum, mm -hmm. get involved. Um, I feel nothing wrong with encouraging people to write checks to support the work of organizations and, and candidates that they love and support. But that also um, is a very necessary way to be an advocate. But what was great about ACT UP, and I just use them because I really do admire them, is what they were asking people to do and what I want people to do, ask themselves now, where do your natural talents lie? Where do your natural inclinations lie and follow them? So, for example, there were people who worked for ACT UP who were, um, you know, they created ads. They created, uh, they were creative directors. They put those skills into practice to create some of the signs and propaganda that ACT UP used to galvanize the, the country. So, I, I'm always sort of like, if you like if you like kids, do something with kids. If you like animals, do something with animals. Use whatever your natural skill set is to make the world better in a way that won't burn you out. Mm -hmm. You know, I think a lot of times we have this idea of like, well, we, I've got to go to every protest. You know, that's a very, not everybody can do that. Not everybody's mm -hmm. able to make that walk and give that time. And there's something you can find. And that's really your responsibility to find out where and how you can be of use. Mm. I love that. I love that you, you say something that won't burn you out, something that you already care about and are passionate about, because it just, it feels like, like people talk about callings all the time and I have different opinions on what that means, but just something that you're already passionate about, like you're saying like animals are like kids and then taking that and being like, that's my avenue to work. That's my yeah. avenue to change things. That's perfect. I mean, there are people, I've known people who are, um, you know, the great gardeners and just go to, go to the local 
park and say, okay, we're going to plant some things here. And I mean, you know, you never know who's going to walk into that park at the end of their rope, so to speak, and take a deep breath and look at that garden and need it. Mm -hmm. And so, but, but first someone's got to plant it. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I, I think it all counts. I mean, I, in the book, I think, and this happens in life, there's often a lot of squabbling about what direction we should do. And, you know, should we be doing direct action? Should we be doing politics? Do everything. Do whatever you can do. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I'm somebody who, you know, in my younger days when I was single, go to a protest. What does it matter if I got arrested? You know, you have the number written on your arm, you get out, you went on with your day. I have two small children, you know, and a lot more responsibilities. <laughs> I, I'm not at that age where that's, that's a viable option to me. You know, I'm probably more likely to make a, dono make a donation. You know, yeah. I'm more likely to give in other ways. What excites me about life is at some point the kids will grow up and maybe I can be like Jane Fonda. Like maybe I can be in my, <laughs> I could be in my eighties and, and I go, you know what? I can get arrested again. Let's go. Yeah. So, but you just have to respect where you are and what you could do. It's much like your body. Like you, yeah. there's, it, the, the story of who you are and what you're capable of changes. Mm. Oh, that's such a great way of tying that into this. Cause it's so, it's so real. Like, how do you do this, but still care about your own physical being? Yeah. Yeah. That's and really you, good. And you have to, and it's not selfish. I mean, like, I, I don't know. I mean, college. There are a lot of things about the college experience that I think are really, really warped and destructive. Among them was the all-nighter. Like, I just remember people in college being so proud of themselves about how little sleep they could function on. And I was up all night doing X, Y, and Z. And so many of us carry that as, as a point of pride, as a measure of our self-worth. Mm -hmm. and, and, and you could beat yourself up the rest of your life with this and it's so destructive. And yet we hold on to it because when we were younger, it didn't penalize us as much as it will penalize us as we grow older. Yeah. And suddenly you find people who can't let it go because they've defined themselves. I have friends, I've, I mean, you know, I love them. And they'll say to me, well, I'm just somebody who doesn't need a lot of sleep. And I go, that's, that's not true. It's not true. I mean, everybody's like, could you imagine being like, I'm not somebody who needs a lot of oxygen. <laughs> I don't need to breathe all the time. I don't anything. <laughs> right. Like, it's like, no, you're a human being. You actually need rest. But there's a whole sort of people have tied their identity. They're telling you what kind of person they are. Mm. And that's that's always the thing that's very hard for people to give up when it's when it's gone to when it's suddenly wrapped up in their identity. Good luck. Mm -hmm. oh wow yeah yeah that makes that makes that brings a lot of light to a lot of a lot of interactions i've had over the years um tell me so so you you have two kids are they are they little boys or girls or uh i have uh, a little girl and a little boy okay that's cool that's really cool. What, what are some main things that you try, I guess, to teach your kids when it comes to this stuff, like at these early ages, like how do you, how do you show this to them in their version? I mean, it's interesting. I mean, we have a book um, um, 
I'm trying to think of the name of it and it's escaping me and I can see the cover. Uh, maybe it'll come to me later, but it's a, it's a book um, about the black experience mm-hmm. and in America. And it says at one point, at one point there's a page of a black family, like the 1930s, very formal dress. And it says, you know, this is for those who survived America. And then you turn the page and the page is blank. And it says, and this is for those who didn't. Oh. And we've talked a lot about what that blank page means. You know, that, um, that sometimes bad things happen to good people. And you're trying to introduce the idea that there isn't that that we're not living in a fairy tale where everything works out mm-hmm. you're trying not to be too heavy on them but i mean like we've already talked to the same book there's a picture of a slave ship and we've talked about slavery and it was like well uh, a long time but you know not so well, it's actually like not so long ago mm-hmm. uh a lot of white people thought black people weren't human they were wrong and they thought they could own them like livestock and they were wrong you with children oftentimes what we've learned is you don't you answer the question they're asking you don't have to dig much further because they're asking you to the edge of their understanding Mm -hmm. and so you don't want to overwhelm them and so you try to just sort of meet them where they are at that particular moment yeah but we absolutely felt like you've got to you've got to raise them in the reality of where we are. I mean, the pandemic did that. Why are we, why do I have to wear this mask? You know, the point was like, because um, you could catch this, you could catch coronavirus at the time you're saying there's no cure for it. There's no protection and it hits people very differently. And maybe you could be a little sick, but maybe you could be a lot sick and maybe you could die. We don't want that. So we're going to wear this mask. Okay. Mm. um yeah by the way i just i mean parenting in every age is always such a big gamble because you are doing something it day in and day out i'm not going to have really any sense of whether or not what i did was right or wrong or it stuck or it didn't for 20 years 30 years depending on how they developed and they reflect on it. So I'm always, whenever talking about parenting advice, I'm always like, this is my best guess. Check back in later. I'll tell you. How <laughs> oh man. Well, I don't, I don't have kids. And so I'm always, I'm always so curious about what the ways, like what are the best ways to, like you're saying, like not be too heavy and overwhelm them and say things they don't understand yet or don't just don't need to understand yet, but with being honest with them and telling them the truth and stuff. And you answer, you answer the question in front of you. And that's, I mean, that's really the best. That's all. I mean, you know, that's what they're, I mean, because sometimes they'll they'll ask it and then they'll just go back to playing. (laughs) Okay. They just, they just want to know that one thing and then they're all right. Okay. Okay, that that's very cool. That's very cool that you're honest with them. I know what I mean. I have, you know you you are doing a reverse playbook when you 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 know when you're raising a kid you're you're examining what you liked and didn't like in your own upbringing, mm-hmm. and so I want it to be honest. Okay, that's very cool. 
That's very cool. Rashid, I have uh, like one or two more questions for you today. Is that okay? Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool, cool. So my first one is... Um, what are what are some techniques that you have some ways that help you on a hard day uh or maybe a day where like like i know i i know i've experienced this where you've taken like a lot of hard information and it just feels heavy how are ways that you connect with yourself and you take care of yourself and your body to combat those moments um i mean sometimes i meditate more often than not i like to walk around my neighborhood at night mm. i like i like the stars i like the moon i like the cool air i love architecture i love seeing houses all lit up in a row and so walking tends to soothe me a lot um i for better or worse <laughs> tend to be pretty good at um throwing off pressure mm. i mean just at some point you stare at it you go there's nothing i can do. there's no more i can do there's nothing else i can do about x y and z so i might as well relax or relax as much as i can um hot baths are nice um hot stone massages are nice oh i want one uh, <laughs> But also just like if you can, you know, go into the, going to a play, going, I mean, anything that can lift me out of the reality it, when I'm really stressed is welcome. Mm. Okay. Is, is that a big reason why you like uh, uh, film and TV shows so much? Why you got involved in all that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean it's, I'm an escape art. I mean, like, People are like, oh, how did you write this book during a pandemic? And I was like, well, okay, so I could stay consciously plugged into a world beyond my control, or I could disconnect and work on a world in which I was in complete control. Mm. You know, of course I'm going to write. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, so my last question for you has uh, nothing to do with anything. If you've listened to a couple episodes, you probably know where I'm going with this. Um, Rashid, would you rather be the coach of a football team where all the players were guinea pigs and they all took the sport very seriously, very, very seriously. Their parents were like all at the games. They were really invested, but they just weren't very good at it. Or, but they were all very sweet and kind to you. Like they loved you. They looked up to you. They don't care about football they want to please you they want to please their parents and they're just having a good time they're just guinea pigs running around or would you rather have a job as a captain of a pirate ship but it's a good pirate ship so it's not it's not a pirate ship that goes and steals stuff it's just a pirate ship that goes around and just has a good time maybe does some good now and then, but also just has a good time. And, and your job is to be a captain. So you're running the crew. They're just doing what, whatever it is, crews of pirate ships do that don't involve stealing money and stuff, unless it's from really bad people. <laughs> uh, yeah. And this is your job and not a lot of people understand it, but it's what you do and you're proud of it. I mean, I think, I mean, the pirate ship sounds like show business. So that's the job. <laughs> That's the job. I mean, I'm, you know, TJ and I are co-showrunners. I don't think most people know what that means. 
um, and what it entails. Mm -hmm. um, it is a pirate ship. I mean, I was, you know, Hollywood is a collection of runaways. Oh, you know, it's just people yeah. who left their hometown for this, that. I mean, so, you know, back in the old days, you ran from home, you might have joined the pirate ship, the Merchant Marines. Well, they joined Hollywood. Um, <laughs> they're wildly talented. They're incredibly unorthodox. Um, we are together. We call it a crew. Mm. Uh, we're together for a brief period of time. Sometimes that's meaningful. Sometimes that's uh, you make lifelong friends. Sometimes it's mercenary. Sometimes you don't like them. They don't like you. We're here to do this job. We're going to do it. And when it's done, we're done. Mm. All that is on the table. <laughs> I love it. But we know it. So yeah, <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think I am the captain of a pirate ship. It makes sense to me. It makes a lot of sense to me. I would have picked that one too, but more so just because I got really into the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. So yeah, yeah. all the reasons. <laughs> That's awesome. Rashid, thank you so much for, for being so kind and generous with your time today and, and answering. Yeah, absolutely. How, how can people find you in your work? Um, on Instagram, I'm at rashid.newson.author. And okay. on Twitter, I'm at Rashid Newson. Okay, and then what are what are the shows that you're um you're I'm currently I'm currently the co showrunner of Bel Air, which airs on Pe Peacock. Uh, okay. You can go there now and watch our entire first season. We are working on season two, which will come out in early 2023. Oh, I'm all, I'm so excited! I've I've heard about it, and I haven't gotten to sit down and watch it. So now I'm going to. I'm Thank excited. You. Absolutely. Are you planning? This is kind of random, but are you planning on writing more books in the future? You kind of don't know. Oh yeah, no, no, oh yeah, no. I'm I'm right now writing one. I want to do a story set in Hollywood. Oh, so that's so that's that's my current my current baby. Okay, that's like, you're an incredible writer. So I'm I'm excited for it. So thank you. Absolutely, congratulations on on all all the things that you that you've been a part of, and I'm just so honored to be able to talk to you. And I'm gonna go learn a lot of things now because <laughs> I have a lot more questions. <laughs> Thank you. Absolutely. Well, you take care, okay? Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Uni Project Podcast. If you guys enjoyed what you heard today, then feel free to go leave us a review anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Or if you wanted to get involved or get in touch, follow me on Instagram at JackieG.TV or check out my website for any and all information, JackieGronlin.com. All of that info is in the description box below. See you next time.